Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op this morning. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful day outside this morning. Sun's up. I'm up. You're up. And Mike Peck is up this morning. He's in the studio with us. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm fantastic. And yourself? Well, I got here through the traffic, so victory number one. Amen. All right. Glad you made it. Really glad that you made it this morning because I'm excited I'm excited more about this program than almost any I've had. We've been on the show for two years now. It was only going to be for one month, the month of October, which is Cooperative Month. But it has been highly successful, and I've learned a lot and grown a lot, and we've had a lot of good people on. And Mike is here to talk about one worker, one one vote. Vote. Oneworkerovote.org. Senor. You can go online and look that up. One worker, that's the number one. One worker, then the number one vote, one worker, one vote. Dot org. Dot org. And I would like to suggest real office if you can make it dot co-op. Oh, well, listen, um, we do so much with uh, with co-ops that that's certainly a good idea. Matter of fact, I think you're the first one to suggest it. So we'll take it back to our co-founders and see where we go. And Pat, I'm sure, would love to tell you what she's learned on how you do that. We're getting an everything dot co-op web page up and running. And so she went through that process of getting the dot co-op and I'm sure she would help you to do that. So I'm excited because when I, when I went on your webpage, one worker, one vote, and it talked about union co-ops and I want you to define that in a minute, but I was thinking, what would it look like if IBM was a co-op, a union co-op? What would it look like if Ford was a co-op? What would it look like if a lot of these companies that we automatically know about is owned and controlled, directed by the workers? Well, first of all, um, we'd have a much more stable, much more democratic workplace. Uh, The rising working class and the middle class would become more of an economic reality than an economic left behind. Um, We'd have much less inequality in America. We'd have more social cohesion. We'd have higher productivity, and we'd be more competitive. Wow. Okay. That's why I'm excited about co-ops, and you said in a breath, <laughs> one breath. But, but let's not just leave it with IBM and GE and all the big companies we know about. Let's talk about, you know, why? how come all of our utilities are not co-ops? How come all of our national labs aren't co-ops? How come everything that's in the public domain in this country isn't owned by the stakeholders? That means the people that depend on them and fund them rather than, you know, a select few who get to call the shots. So really, you know, what we're talking about here is the re-democratization of, of the American workplace. Well, you know, when you talk about democracy, one member, one vote. And um, I think that's the second principle of cooperative and the seven principles. That's right. Democratically controlled organization, one member, one vote. It blows the mind in thinking about when you talk about redistribution of wealth. 
I'm not talking about redistribution of wealth. I'm talking about um, do-it-yourself, bootstrapping, um, earning it yourself, uh, but setting it up right so that when you contribute to the profits of the enterprise, you have a happier ending uh, that's much more deserving. I'm not talking about anything that has to do with redistribution. Well, you know, because I understand what that definition had meant in the past, but when I think of redistribution of wealth, it is self-help. It is people earning it themselves. I'm African-American, and I never believed that anybody was going to give me 40 acres and a mule, okay? When I first heard that at 10, 12, 13, it just didn't make any sense to me that somebody's going to give me something. So it's like, how do you get people, why well, I love co-ops now, the ability to go make it themselves? So when I, I think of redistribution, that's the only way I see making it. That's the only reason I see happening. With tax laws, I see changing tax laws, but getting people to start their own co-ops, getting people to... If you could get the government to say that Pepco uh, or um, Amtrak or any of these other entities as quasi-government or government, that the people could own it. I think you're talking about a consumer co-op. Well, no, I'm talking about uh, worker co-ops. Um, we're very focused on worker co-ops. Okay. But I would just like to go back to your point. You know, cooperatives have been one of the key platforms of really the liberation of the African-American community in this country to participate in the American economy like they should. Um, I've done a lot of work with the South Carolina NAACP. I've participated in a number of events with Cooperation Jackson in Jacksonville, Mississippi. Uh, and we are very, and we've also worked uh, with the Institute for Policy Studies on um, what's happening in Baltimore. And we believe that bringing equity into inner city America and into economically disenfranchised populations is the best liberation one can ever hope for. Um, because when people own their own enterprise, there's an old saying, nobody ever washes a rental car. And there's a reason for that. Um, when, when you own your own enterprise, you give it more of your best, you treat it as, as if it were your own, um, you take more personal responsibility, there's more accountability, and there are better results. And now we have we have academic institutions of high repute all over this country now coming up with great metrics as to how employee-owned companies, worker-owned cooperatives uh, did during the Great Recession as opposed to other kinds of companies. And guess what? They did a whole lot better. Well, what I've, what I've noticed in this last Great Recession was that what I do in the daytime, it, my main job is property management. And how I learned about co-ops was through housing co-ops and managing them and seeing how much better they function than apartment buildings for the people that live in it. That's a form of a consumer co-op. People that live in a housing co-op owns it, control it, manages, or, or either they can manage it or hire somebody like me to come in and manage it. And it was amazing to me that when we went through this great recession that you just didn't have the co-ops going under like you did single-family right. homes and others. That's exactly right. There was some problems in California and in Michigan, but that was because the whole economy went down. Right. Right. Not because the individual buildings went down. Right. They didn't make those awful decisions. I talked, the first thing that I, I liked about co-ops, you had everyday people making very, very sound decisions on what was right. best for the entity. Right. Okay. First and foremost. Right. So, I mean, you know, ownership is, is the original system condition in America. The people who came here willingly uh, came here uh, for land ownership because land ownership was the big uh, defining difference between what they could experience where they started from and what they could experience here. And land ownership 
sort of migrated towards mineral ownership, um, infrastructure ownership, and then home ownership. Home ownership, remember, it became the cornerstone of the American dream. Mm -hmm. All of us, all mm -hmm. my friends, our neighborhoods where I grew up, everybody's wealth was tied up in their home. People saved through their home. And that, that equation kind of fell apart uh, in 2008 when the financials, uh, when Wall Street really brought us down. And people, you know, their homes became underwater overnight through no fault of their own. People were literally out of a job and out of their house. And it was a big scandal in this country that we have not yet recovered from. And out of this migration from land ownership to, to mineral and resource ownership to home ownership, we're now at the point of workplace ownership. And it's a moment not too soon because technology has evolved to a point where we're not as free as our iPhone or our smartphone devices. Our devices are always on. They find us everywhere we are. We're all working 24-7. We're all connected, but our workplaces are not. Our, our devices are freer than we are. They can roam where we can't. <laughs> and it's about time we got the human beings up to the same level as the technology. That's fascinating. You've been thinking about this. I have been thinking about it. How yes, long sir. have you been doing this? We've been doing it for a long time. I have. I'm, I am extremely honored and fortunate to be the North American delegate for Mondragon, um, and I've had that role since uh, 1999. Uh, Mondragon, as most of you will know out in radio land, is the world's largest worker industrial cooperative. It was started 60 years ago uh, by a simple village priest. He was the substitute priest because the, um, the original priest showed up and chickened out and went away. This guy showed up in a bicycle. It was in Spain, in the northwest part of Spain, in the Basque region of Spain, in between uh, the Spanish Civil War and, um, and right after World War II, uh, where a lot of that part of the country was in rubble, 50% unemployment. This gentleman, this priest showed up and for 10 years, 15 years, he preached collaboration. He ended up uh, creating a school. He graduated five engineers. They formed a little kerosene stove co-op, and he started a bank because uh, he couldn't get them loans. He started a mutual. That school became a university. Fast forward 60 years. Now, what's a mutual? A mutual is an insurance insurance company. Okay. Um, it provided Social Security benefit for like co-ops. Like nationwide. That's here. right. Exactly right. And so, you know, for, fast forward 60 years, uh, there's 71,000 people. Uh, it's about a $16 billion corporation. Um, the Financial Times gave it the Boldness in Business Award, and it's considered one of the economic uh, wonders of the world uh, with a constant trek of people trying to study it. So I come from that background. Um, I also worked uh, in a very famous, at the time, employee-owned company, Science Applications International Corporation, under its legendary founder, Dr. Beister, who founded uh, an employee-owned company and managed uh, to create ownership for people who had never experienced it before. So you have an American uh, tradition, you have a Spanish tradition, and now we have to have a new economy tradition. A what economy? A new economy tradition. New economy? Yes, sir. The new economy move movement in America is alive and well. There's organizations all over uh, all over the states that are working this hard. I can happy Mike, to name you 50 of them if you'd like. Michael, I would like to come back and talk about this new economy. We need to talk more about Mondragon. We just have a lot to talk about. I said I was excited. <laughs> I am. I want to learn. I love when I'm learning, and this is what you're doing for me today. But we have to take our first break. We'll be right back. We'll get the news, the weather, and um, traffic, and then we'll come back. Uh, please don't touch that dial. We have more information about one member, one vote. 1450 WOL. You know, information is power. 
totally get that. My grandfather said, get an education, boy, whether he was sober or drunk. Get an education on the, in the hills of Bluefield, West Virginia. That, get that information. Get that knowledge. Because if you use the knowledge, then that's where the power comes from. Also, Michael, I, I was at the um, Greenbelt Homes Co-op. It's a 1,600-unit co-op right here in Greenbelt, Maryland. We can almost throw a rock at it from here. And they had a sign that said that co-ops gives people the tools to control their own destiny. That, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. And I commend you coming from Bluefield, West Virginia, because I had the honor of working for Senator Byrd for two years. Oh. And um, I learned a lot about the great state of West Virginia. I lived for a while in Shepherdstown. And, uh, and West Virginia has a lot going for it, starting with you. Well, Senator Byrd did a lot, lot for, for West Virginia. And um, it was also interesting, his transformation, because he was in the Ku Klux Klan <laughs> back in the day. That's right. And he, he had changed. It was nice to see the transformation that a human being can go through. Paul on the road to Damascus. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, no, it was Saul on the road to Damascus <laughs> who came out to be Paul. That's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it is also nice that people can can get that. I love I love it, and I would love to see more people get this co-op model. If they can understand this co-op model and this new economy that you were talking about, and that's what I, I want to go back to. And I believe when you, when you talk about Wall Street, what they had done to us, which capitalized in 08 with, with the downturn, that the uh, Occupy Wall Streeters, that co-op is the answer for them, all of them. Yes, sir. And there's a very, very vibrant cooperative movement now and a worker cooperative movement in New York City. You know, Mayor de Blasio and the New York City Council have appropriated $3.3 million to fund worker co-ops over the last two years. Mm -hmm. So there are cities like like Madison, Wisconsin. Five million. Like city, yeah, one five million a year. One five. million a year. And, and that was based on our union co-op model from One Worker, One Vote. Oh, the inspiration for the Madison money was directly from our union co-op model, this, you know, formed by the United Steelworkers. Leo Gerard, the president of the United Steelworkers, probably the most um, progressive and, and inspirational labor leader in the country. Uh, and and, and Mondra you know, we teamed up in, in 2009 to create this union co-op model. Um, and Madison, uh, the labor community in Madison, brought it to the attention of both mayors, both candidates for mayor at the time. They were both equally inspired. They made a bipartisan pact to do it, whoever won, and they kept their word. Um, and now, you know, Madison's going to take great strides in this direction. And same with Seattle, staying with Minneapolis. I mean, cities are catching on that when you, you ease the pathway to ec for equity for your inner city residents, Good things happen. I have so much going on in my head right now. You, you bring out so, so, so much of what we can do, what each individual can do to create their own sort of destiny, to, to get in and help either create a worker cooperative. And a worker cooperative is the employees own the business. That's right. Own and control. And manage and govern the business. Yeah. Yes, sir. That's the own and control of the business. They, they, you got to have that in the in the formula, and it is one worker one vote dot org. Yes, for the time uh, being, before we change it to dot co op. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where are you from originally? Well, I'm kind of uh, East Coast guy. Um, I was uh, I started out in New York City and um, migrated my way to Boston and joined the Navy, and now I'm from everywhere. Okay. How long were you in the Navy? I was seven years of active and 13 years in the reserves. Well, because from Bluefield, I wanted to be in the Navy, but I wanted to be a pilot. But somehow Vietnam sort of got in the way. Yeah. Uh, and glasses. Yeah. Eyeglasses. 
Uh, no, I, I, I'll, I'll never forget. I am the same uh, generation, and um, I wear glasses now. I didn't then, but I was close to having to wear glasses and to qualify for a Navy ROTC scholarship. In those days, you had to have 20-20 vision. And uh, my father took me down to the Boston Naval Yard. It was Vietnam. Everybody was queuing up uh, to see if they were going to get drafted. I was the only guy trying to pass that physical, and people told me I was totally whacked. <laughs> <laughs> I passed the, the exam but never took the physical once I got glasses. And my father was World War II and grandfather World War I, and they set me and my two brothers down and said, we don't understand this war. And that was sort of a right. huge problem. We don't, we don't get this one. Right, right. Well, um, I mean, I was lucky because um, I came in, you know, Vietnam was essentially over in 75, and I entered college as a midshipman in 71. But I had a, I had a 300... And twenty something draft number, so I was never going to get drafted anyway. But in my family, we were brought up to serve, um, yep. serve yep. first, and then speak. You know, speak your piece. So it was it was always obvious to me where I was going to go. Well, we uh, were raised to serve. We were raised to vote. We were raised to <clears throat> help our fellow. You know, this this whole thing of uh, I am my brother's keeper that was sort of right in there. And so all of these things that we are learned as Americans fit into. This, democratic control model. This is so true. It's so true. It's like trying to find our origins again and then perfect them in the context of our, our modern world. And as I said before, you know, people came to this country seeking ownership. And we've lost that. Robert Reich does a great presentation. He says that 75% of the American economy is based on consumption. And even Henry Ford who was xenophobic and slightly fascist, understood that if you pay your workers enough to buy the cars they're making, guess what? Your sales will increase. Your workers will do better. We have lost that. Um, if you've seen the New York Times article about um, Amazon and purposeful Darwinism, is, is it, we have come so far away from allowing people to own their workplace and, and workplace democracy that we're entering once again into this two-caste system of worker and owner that we had in, in just before the Great Depression. Except now the chains aren't steel and iron. They're these velvet, invisible digital chains, and they're much more pernicious because they're harder to see and harder to break. You have been really thinking about this, and... Uh, I came out of high school in 1965, so I just turned 68 this month. And just watching and learning about the economy and the ups and downs of the economy and how the rich will make it on their way up and they make it on their way down. Mm-hmm. Where the poor or the, the, the one percenters get 57% of the new money, the, the profits and stuff. And the 99 percenters get the other 40 percent. And the 60 percent and below get real, real little bit amount of money. And so it's like this constant struggle between labor and capital. That's right. Constant struggle. That's right. And so in Mondragon, we have our own principles. They're very similar to the cooperative principles. But we add, we add another very important principle. We say that labor is sovereign. And capital, while important, is always secondary to labor. And so in the U.S., we've called that own your labor, rent your capital. And, and the reason for that is um, that when you honor human labor and you say it's a lot more, it's a resource, not a commodity, it's amazing uh, what you spring out of the closet and, and into the marketplace in terms of liberating people to fulfill their own destiny. And the cooperative structure is, is a perfect way to do that.
I told you when we started, I was inspired about this one, and you just you're not you're not failing me. I'm hoping everybody out there is is get as inspired about this new knowledge. Own your labor and rent your capital. Yes, sir. Yes, labor is sovereign. Capital takes the second. Capital, capital, while important, is always subordinate to labor. And, you know, we have some major proofs about how that works now, models that actually work. And, and, and you know, we're, we're always about being profitable. This is not, you know, creating um, companies or enterprises that are dependent on public largesse. These are for-profit enterprises. very important to be profitable because when you're profitable, you prove the principles. You also have to give the freedom to the workers to vote, to decide what are they going to do with those profits. And if they work hard and have a profitable enterprise and they vote to put those profits to their values. That's where you get what we call the solidarity economy and you get this, this, this infusion of liberty and democracy in an economy where people have free choice. Uh, and we know that a better mar- a free market can only exist when you have free choice. We have a number of, of really outstanding institutions that are springing up all over the country. I just name a few. The American Sustainable Business Council, ASBC, they have almost 300,000 triple bottom line businesses as members, 325,000 uh, CEOs. Um, uh, they are uh, incredible companies who are, who are committed to this kind of new workplace freedom. Um, you have the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. You have the New Economy Coalition. Um, you have the Federation of Worker Cooperatives, and and you have uh, the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative. And if I could just say a little bit about CUCI, the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative, anybody who wants to know the hands-on, how to do it, how to manage, how to grow, how to start, how to fund a union cooperative should come down to Cincinnati because we have a huge event on November 13 and 14 uh, where practitioners are coming from all over the place to, you know, show best practices and, you know, show not tell, show not tell like we learned in English 101, show not tell uh, so you can kick those tires and, and see what it's really all about. Okay, so that's November the 13th and 14th. It's, an, it's a nationwide... It's Friday and Saturday. That's right. It's a nationwide symposium uh, for union co-ops, and it's hosted and sponsored by the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative, which is, which is really part of the nationwide movement of One Worker, One Vote. I'm going to come back and talk more about Cincinnati because they had this co-op there. It's called Green Something Green. Right. They had three co-ops, three worker co-ops. Well, they have, they have, that's right, they have, our, they have our Harvest Union Co-op, they have Sustainergy Union Co-op, and they have five or six others uh, that are in the, in, the, in the shoot, in the process, ready to launch. We'll be right back. If you have any questions, you can call in at 1-800-450-7876, 450-7876, and don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. 1450-WOL. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Everything Co-op. We have Mr. Michael Peck on the show this morning. Peck's bad boys. <laughs> okay. Michael, you've got my brain just going. It, it is it is fascinating um, having this conversation with you. I'm glad you're here. I'm so glad you were able to make it in through the traffic this morning. Um You've talked about a lot of different different things already in the first half an hour, so we have a half an hour more to go. 
So I want to be able to get people to understand where they can go if they want this information is power. We want to give them information so that if they want to start a co-op, look at a co-op, one thing they can go to Cincinnati, November 13th and 14th. You can go to oneworkeronevote.org, and you can get all information about it. Uh, I'm going to try to go. I've already looked at it. That's that's why I knew it was on Friday and Saturday. We we Uh, would love to have you. We would uh, be honored to have you. Can you talk to us about this whole workforce, this this whole organization that that, that you're putting forth, this one worker, one vote? Well, first of all, you know, nobody has a monopoly on the truth. We're all earnest seekers of the truth. And uh, we go back to English 101, which is show, not tell. Um, And so there's great things happening in a number of cities across the country. The cities are turning out to be sort of the laboratories and innovators of democracy, like the states used to be in the 1980s when that book first came out as the laboratory. Now it's the cities. And so in Cleveland, Ohio, we have the Evergreen platform, which is, you know, this incredible infusion of worker ownership and uh, workplace democracy um, that has been put together by the Cleveland Foundation, by the Democracy Collaborative, uh, and and by the Ohio Employee Ownership Center. John Logue, the founder, had a big role in that. And um, they've really been pioneers. They have three cooperatives. They've created upwards of 120 jobs. And and they've really planted, I think, the flag uh, out in, in, in a new territory uh, it's a great model. Um, in, in, in New York, uh, we have a whole explosion of, of worker cooperatives. Uh, CUNY Law School has its uh, clinic for economic, uh, community, for eco- community Economic Development Clinics, the EDC, which is leading the way training, uh, training lawyers to go in the street and help people assert you know, their democratic workplace rights. Uh, we have Medgar Evers College, uh, Professor Roger Green, um, he used to be the national campaign uh, uh, manager for the Jesse Jackson campaigns, uh, working with uh, SEIU 1199 to go after inner city hospitals and turn them into worker co-ops. We have MIT CoLab that is this incredible Bronx uh, Cooperative De- uh, Development Initiative, BCDI, where they're uh, working with Bronx leaders to transform the Bronx. We have this whole revolution happening in Madison, Wisconsin, in Seattle, um, and of course in Cincinnati. And in Cincinnati, uh, we have uh, really there, there's nobody's been left behind in the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative. When we go down there to the civic events, everybody shows up from the activists to labor people, academics, and the bankers. The bankers showed up because the bankers, up? the bankers are there with big smiles because they are lending. They are doing feasibility plans and business plans and lending to the projects that this community is developing. And we want to go through that rigorous, rigorous uh, gauntlet of producing a feasibility plan, producing a business plan, and having a commercial bank or a credit union or or a community bank lend us money. Because if the bankers get it, we know that we've communicated it and we have done something of value. And met their knowledge, what they look for to say this is a good deal. Well, what they look for (laughs) is what bankers always look for, which is uh, management quality, um, a good product, a good price, commitment to the enterprise, People who can deliver a history of selling, proof of market, and you know we are creating those kinds of enterprises. The difference between what we're doing and what's been done before is the workers involved get to own the enterprise, they get to run the enterprise, and they get to make all the decisions. Well, it sounds like you're also giving them the knowledge they need. Well, I mean, 
It's not that we're imparting any knowledge. What we are doing is facilitating and working with people uh, who are generating their own knowledge. Uh, there's a lot of examples. What we try to do is we try to play a role of extreme connectivity and best practices. And, uh, you know, this is a sweat equity enterprise. You know, the number one thing that works in America is do it yourself. And these are people who have started uh, by putting their savings and their credit cards on the table, by working nights and weekends, month after month after month. And what they've achieved is entirely to their own credit. I hear you, but one of the things I like about co-ops, too, I told you that's a lot I like about co-ops, but the fifth principle, and that is uh, education, training, and information. And somehow they've got to get education. I've talked on this program. I have an MBA, and I was studying banking. That was what, And I got that people, bankers look for one, they look for three things when they're making a loan. How are they going to get their money back? How are they going to get their money back? And how are they going to get their money that's back? So okay, <laughs> that's, that's what they look for. That's and so true. most of the time, I remember the first time I wanted to open up a business. I was 20 years old. I was going to open up a restaurant, and I knew nothing about a restaurant. So you got to understand how you run a business because for the business, they're either going to loan to people who already have money because they know they can go get their money or land or the stuff you talked about earlier that they got something, or they're going to loan to people that really know and have the experience to do whatever they say they're going to do because they got to get their money back. That's what they're in they got to make a little bit and get their money back. So somehow they got to get the knowledge, and that's what I'm, you're showing them where to go, how to go, how to get it. But we're also we're also laying the seeds for a tremendous uh, knowledge uh, delivery uh, education platform. Our prototype is launched this September in New York City through uh, CUNY Law School. Uh, Professor Carmen Huertas Noble of CUNY Law is leading this and helped by Professor Chris Clamp of the University of Southern New Hampshire and many other dedicated and talented people. Uh, we're, we're collaborating with Mondragon University for their social economy and cooperative enterprise uh, curriculum. And we're launching a certificate course that once we uh, get it through all the wickets and, and the standards to which we aspire in, in New York, we're going to take this nationwide. Uh, we have a pretty extensive vision about how we're going to do this. The, cost, the course is going to be deliberately low cost so that everybody can have access to it uh, regardless of means. We're, we're talking to foundations to make sure that is absolutely the case. And we intend to create an online community of teachers involved in this course and students who take it, sort of like the cooperative version of LinkedIn. Cooperative version of LinkedIn, okay. You've already gone much further than I have, so I'm, I'm going to add this real quick. Seven years ago, I figured out what I want to be when I grew up. I want to promote co-ops, develop co-ops, get education institutions that teach co-ops or even, you know, like I taught at Howard and I, City University in New York, GW for one year, San Diego State for four years. So it's like how do you get these schools to understand co-ops? That's one of my goals. And my fourth, my fourth goal is to either give money to people that do these three things above or in or help raise money to do these things. So that's, that's what I want to do when I, as I grow up. Well, well that is a, a very lofty goal, and I'd be honored to carry your bag to any destination to go do that. I think to answer your, one, your first point on how do you get these schools, these, the smart schools are listening to their students. And what are their students saying? Their students are saying, we live in a sharing economy, but we don't want to be involuntarily shared. We want to have control over our destiny. We want to have the freedom to choose. 
we want to be able to pay off our debts, and we, we want to do something that matters. And so this is the good side of the portfolio gig economy. And when you have ownership of your enterprise, which is what millennials understand, and gener- generation X's, Y's, and Z's, they know that unless they own it, they will be involuntarily shared. Uh, and, and so to participate as an active, the goal of their education and the smart progressive schools understanding it, and they're scrambling to give the students what they want. Oh, I love it, sir. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and sharing this information. Thank you. I know there's a the school in Nova Scotia that teaches co-ops. St. Mary's. St. Mary's. That's right. At Mondragon has their school. Mondragon University. That's right. Okay. I've been talking to the Federation of Southern Co-ops about starting a, they do their teaching and certificate programs in Epps, Alabama, but starting a community college, particularly right. if, if community college is a way of going for low cost, but if the, if the President Obama has his way, then it would be no cost, and we could get this education out to people because that's what I want. I, I like the education that I've seen in co-ops when I go around to different functions, if I can make this one in, in Cincinnati. Right. I see that that education is shared and people love giving the knowledge. There's not this whole back is competitiveness is if I shared, if I tell you how I did it, my best practices, then somehow you're going to go get more business than I did. You don't have that in the corporate That's right. And there's this huge need. We have multi-billion dollar cooperatives in the United States on the procurement, on the, especially on the procurement and the agricultural cooperative side. And what institution in the United States is teaching people how to manage in those co-ops? Really nobody. So nobody. so we're starting with our prototype at CUNY Law School. CUNY Law School, which was voted America's number one public service law school for the past six years. So the right kind of values institution to start. We're starting there, but we have a list of 50 institutions around the country that have already showed interest in our certificate course. And we're going to get it out as fast and furious as we can in 2016. And uh, from there, build a platform of like-minded people. And that's the law. Is that law school? What about business schools? That, and that's, that's why we have Medgar Evers College as part of our CUNY team because they have a strong business curriculum. And, and also I would say that Harvard Business School has just uh, published a case study on One Worker, One Vote and Mondragon and um, everybody should go to their link and, and order it. That would make Harvard Business School very happy. I would like to do that also. Now did you know that Leland Stanford who started Stanford was a senator and he yes, had created laws to start worker co-ops? Yes sir, he did. Yeah. He didn't get them passed but it was interesting that he, he was a capitalist, a, a railroad baron. So he had made his money as a capitalist. Somehow when his son died, it seemed like he saw the light and he opened up Stanford uh, University in honor of his son and he wanted to get people, workers, to have everything that you've been talking about here today. That have control over their life to be able to create both social and financial wealth. That's right. Okay. Civic equity. That's well, that's a new word for me. Civic equity. Okay. Go ahead. So, so, so I have, do I have a couple of minutes Absolutely. more? No, we have about 20 minutes. Okay, great. So, Vernon, one of the questions that everybody asks me is, um, well, you know, we have this union co-op model, which is a hybrid model. You know, we're a hybrid country. We're an immigrant country. Hybrid is what we do best. (laughs) Uh, So people always ask me, though, you know, why why do you want to reach out to labor? Um, And and if you're in a union, you know, and you're an owner, how does that work? And and I always say that um, in Mondragon, we have something called uh, a social committee. And even though we have one worker, one vote, even though we have 60 years of practice, even though 20% of us can band together at any time and change our CEO if we want, uh, even though we have all these redundant Democrat institutions, Democratic institutions built into our structure so that no personality could undo what has been done, 
Still, there's a difference between the experience of somebody on the, on the factory floor and someone in the office with the window. And in order to make sure that those differences are calibrated and equalized as much as possible, we have uh, the social committee, which is a way of going right to the top with concerns that have not been met through the normal channels. And so if we slide out the social committee chair, uh, uh, the social committee tray, and we slide in yeah. uh, union uh, cooperative uh, collective bargaining agreement, uh, we, we get the same thing. A collective bargaining agreement is nothing more or less than, first of all, the right of free association, which is one of our inalienable rights, but it's also the Magna Carta of how a company runs. And so a lot of people told me that, hey, we started a co-op and we have all these incredible democratic ideas, but we spent the first two years talking about who gets to go to the bathroom and when, and everybody got to vote. And, and the idea is, you know, we believe that our structure creates the most competitive enterprises. We have people have one worker, one vote. They with with the, our union friends, they have the highest possible benefits at the lowest possible cost because they're affiliated with you know critical buying mass, and they go out into the marketplace, and all they have to worry about really is making sure their business is competitive. We'll be right back, everybody. We have 15 more minutes to talk about this one worker one vote dot org, and you can go look at at their webpage. We'll be right back. This is our last last break. We only have about 13 more minutes. We'll. Get her done. Please don't touch the dial. 1450 WOL. You know, National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. Welcome back. I'm Vernon Oaks for Everything Cooperative. They're sponsoring this program so that you get more knowledge about cooperatives and how they work, uh, how they function, so that you may go out and say, okay, I want to go into a housing co-op. You can look for them, and so you can have a voice and how it's operated, how it is run, what are the rules, are, can you have pets and not pets and so forth, or you can go to a credit union, get better banking services at a lower price, or you can start your own worker cooperative, uh, or you can go find a worker cooperative, Equal Exchange, uh, we had Madison, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and they have a health clinic that's owned, that's a consumer co-op, they have a health clinic that's owned by the patients, so there's all kinds of different ways of getting involved in here. You can go to N- NCBA, National NCBA. Cooperative Business Association, right. NCBA.coop. N- NCBA.coop to get information. You can go to NCB.coop, the National Co-op Bank, to get information. And you can go to one worker, one vote, one vote dot org. Dot org. I started to say co-op. <laughs> okay. Well, Vernon, you're going to get us to dot co-op today. Or dot one org. worker, one vote dot org to get information about how you can get involved in this movement, this new economy that we're talking about, solidarity, where people are working together, creating social wealth and financial wealth. You and civic wealth. Civic wealth. That's right. And individual wealth, too. Individual wealth. That's yeah, right. Absolutely. And community wealth. You know, and that's what I think of social wealth, that it's a whole community. And it's not only the, the, not only the financial wealth, but it is understanding how the system works. That's right. Understanding and then participating in that. That's right. And with ownership, you have jobs that can't be outsourced and out and offshored, which is another thing that we've learned the hard way after NAFTA with losing 60,000 factories in the United States. Um, we've learned that uh, we have to dig our roots a little bit deeper and control, control what's happening so that some ex-territorial decision-maker can't decide whether our community lives or dies. You know, not knowing that there's voice, like, Growing up, I mean, I, I I couldn't believe this 40 acre and a mule like I talked to you about. I couldn't believe that Reagan's trickle down economy would work. That somehow 
if the rich made money, somehow that's going to come down to the working people. I just didn't believe that. I also definitely did not believe. I couldn't even see, because I worked at, at Ford one year in 1969, 1966. I didn't have money to go to school, and I went to Detroit. I worked at Ford in, the, in their, in their uh, assembly line. And so I just couldn't see how it was going to help the assembly line people if they took those jobs to India, to China, to somewhere else before the Lord. I just couldn't. It just made no sense to me. But the, the politicians were saying how great it was going to be for America. No, that, that doesn't make sense. Well, we don't believe in trickle down. We believe in gusher up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Trickle down doesn't work. I can see gusher, gusher up. up. That's okay. right. Particularly if you gush to your own family, that's your right. own community. That's exactly right. Okay. That's where we're, on, we're focused on that. And, and, and what, what I've, I've heard on this program a lot is that when people get into co-ops, if you get into a worker co-op and you understand, you learn how it works, it's getting the knowledge that you need. I call it just-in-time information. Don't necessarily have to go to college or get a master's or any, but you get the knowledge that you need to make informed decisions. Then you see how the system works, and you get people that will join the board of education. You get people out of these co-ops that would get on city council. It, it expands outward also, so that people get knowledge, they know how things work, and then they they'll take, go and get other positions to help the community. I, I totally agree with that, and I think that so many times we're just separated by our vocabulary. Um, and if we can get past our past yesterday's vocabulary into tomorrow's opportunity, you know, the proverbial "go to where the ball's going, not where it's been," um, we'll see vastly different results. There's a great book called *The Citizen Share* by Professors Blasey, uh, Friedman, and Cruz, Rutgers, and Harvard. Uh, and in that, in the book, in the beginning of the book, they document how ownership was foremost uh, a, a principle in the foundation of America from the colonies, the way we protected um, our, our seafaring industry, our logging industry, our timber industry, our agricultural industry, the industries that we had, we, we put a huge focus, from, starting from our colonial times, on one worker, one vote, on, on, on individual ownership, on protection of that ownership. And we've lost that. We've become a renter economy. We've become not a sharing economy, but an economy that gets shared. Um, and there's a great project in Cincinnati called Renters' Equity. And um, uh, this incredible lady, uh, Marjorie Spinney, um, African-American, she has come up with this concept and proven it, that she takes uh, – she has a point – devised a point system for people living in public housing. And she's gone through the economics of how public housing becomes profitable because usually it's not profitable because it's mm -hmm. such high turnover. And you can reverse engineer that. And by, by following what she's laid out, people end up collecting enough – equity points to afford the down payment of their unit and transform from being a renter to an owner. This is entirely possible for every single industry in every single city across America. We just have to look at what's happening to us and address it with new eyes. So this public housing became uh, a co-op? Uh, co became, became like amalgamated, like amalgamated housing in, in New York City. It became an individual, you know, a co-op owned enterprise. And, and, and this is, we want to turn, we want to turn renters back into owners. We want to turn workers into owners. We want to turn owners into more owners. This is the most bipartisan main street, uh, traditional American do it yourself impulse happening in our economy today. You know, I was looking up amalgamated and I'm, see that you talked about, it. I think it's 1400 units in the Bronx in New York. Right. 
and it's 90 years old. It's old. It's, it's been around. It's stable. Uh, it is owned. It's a co-op. It's owned by the people that live there. They're proud to live there. Yeah. And it was started by the union. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's right. So, so you know, you know, labor, labor is beginning to understand that they have to get to the ownership quadrant, because instead of fighting over less and less every single year, let's own the process and be able to set terms where we know our workers will be taken care of. But also, you know, with every right comes a responsibility. Uh, when you own your enterprise. Um, time, you know, punching that time card, that's not exactly what makes that enterprise work. Uh, it's, it's the above and beyond. People go above and beyond because they own their own enterprises. That's what makes enterprises competitive and resilient. You know, sometimes it's not those great charts that show everything rising. It's what do you do at the downside of a market cycle? How do you come back? And ownership allow, allow, gives the freedom to people to fight another day. And, and that is what makes an economy resilient and, in the end, even more competitive. Well, the whole idea of ownership, if you own it, you take better care of it. There was a study that the National Co-op Bank sponsored, uh, had an independent organization do the study. They looked at HUD-sponsored um, Department of Housing and Urban Development, sponsored apartment buildings, and, uh, and sponsored co-ops. And it was absolutely amazing, the results. And the reason I bring it up is because we're talking about the, the advantage of ownership. Everything that you could think of, the rents were lower in the co-op. Over time, uh, you could have the co-op uh, being $500 and the apartment building being seven to $800. So that if HUD was having uh, what they call Section 8, they would be paying less money for the co-op. Also, it was, it was less because people took better care of the, their property. So you didn't have as big a maintenance. You didn't have the um, 10% or 20% of whatever the investor wanted to get on top of whatever it was needed to run it in terms of cost. People made money. They talking about the individual wealth. When you look at their return from their investment, it was normally the same as security deposit. They had a 7.1% return, but it did not include the, their lower taxes. They got a write-off for property taxes and write-off for interest rates. It didn't. It just didn't include the opportunity because they're having to pay that two to three hundred dollars more a month. They liked where they lived better. They were was this community that talked about the social wealth, but there was also less crime. That's right. Because everybody, if they saw something going on, they saw something. They said something. They did Personal something. responsibility. Personal responsibility. That's right. And uh, what I also like, I have a sixteen-unit uh, senior building. I don't think for what we. I think we have one person in there that may have a college degree now. Most people at best have a high school, but they learn, they take care of, and they hold each other accountable. And they hold me accountable. Yes, sir. And, and, and you know, we're taught that it's not the endpoints, it's the rate of acceleration that counts in life. And ownership is that rate of acceleration. Do you like your work? I, I don't even consider it work. It is mission-driven, <laughs> 100%, 24-7. Everybody on this program loves what they do. Mission-driven, 24-7. The problem with balance of life, I've had some to say, is they love this so much, they got to make sure they go away from what they do every day, from their mission, to take care of their family, because they love what they do. And that's helping people, that's being involved. 
You know, I thank you so much. Love to have you on. Thank hopefully, you. I'll see you in uh, hopefully, Cincinnati. Hopefully, and I, I just want to extend uh, our, my thanks to National Corporate Bank, who has been a big help to this movement as it unfolds as well. Well, Chuck Snyder is a phen phenomenal man, and one lady, I think she was from Calvert Cheese, up said that he's a he's a uh, she called him an angel. He, he, well, he comes from Reading, Reading, Pennsylvania, and he's never forgotten his blue collar roots. Yeah, he, he he does well, and so does the bank. They've got a lot of good people in there trying to help people, help communities become better. And this whole new economy that you're talking about, they're right in the center of it. And they do really do great work. Hope you learned a lot today. Please go to oneworkeronevote.org and get more information about this. And hopefully we'll see you in Cincinnati on the 13th and 14th. And we'll be right back next Thursday with Everything Cooperative. Have a wonderful week. 1450 WOL.